This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scott. Hi, and welcome to ContraCast. My name is Cat Boyd, and I am joined with my lovely co-host, David Jameson, and we are back on our bullshit. Mm-hmm. We are back after another hiatus. You know, we're like just like the ultimate politicians, I think, because like we spent ages not doing a pod, and then we do a pod, and we're like, oh, don't worry, like we'll do more pods really soon, <laughs> and then we just don't. It's kind of like independence, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're constantly dangling that carrot. You know what <laughs> I mean? I mean, I think our pod is as chaotic as independence would be. Even though I'm pro-independence, I still think it might be chaotic. Oh yeah, I mean, a, a Scotland with the SNP firmly in charge and control of all the powers would be as chaotic um, as the schedule for Conorcast. Can I just add a little caveat to that? Hmm. Imagine it's an independent Scotland. Right, close your eyes for a second. Take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. You're smelling in the fresh Ayrshire farm air. The smell of manure tickles the hairs in your nostrils. But it's nostalgic for a simpler time. And then you remember Scotland is independent and its government is an SNP Green Coalition. Mm, Yeah. No, I I thought you were going to say, you know, it's it's government. I I was was sort of getting Reformation vibes when you're talking about Ayrshire, and then you brought me right back down. I only said Ayrshire because that's where you're from. Yeah. It's also where the Reformation's from. No coincidence. Um, David, I swear to God, see if this is going to be a pod about the Reformation again. That's that's me, are we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I, I mean, since we last spoke, Things have gone from disastrous to much more disastrous for the SNP. Except the the decomposition of the SNP's physical body, right? Its disintegration is it's taking place quite slowly. Like if I if I were sick enough to be enjoying this, I'd be enjoying the slowness of the decomposition. Do you know what I mean? I'd be like, don't all go in one go, right? Don't explode in one fireball okay so yeah so hypothetically if you were say sick enough Mm. be somewhat enjoying this you would be enjoying the fact that it's a slow daily drip of bodies right because i mean i mean i I am interested in in how this decomposition works out because you know a lot lot of people said about the snp once they'd replaced labor as the kind of party of the nation in scotland because scotland does this it has it's only this town's only big enough for one party right is there's basically the theory of scottish politics it was the tories well it was liberals then it was tories then it was labor now it's the snp and people said well this is it this is the changing of the guard so you can expect this for another 30 or 40 years. The difference is Scotland's not different to any other country in Europe, right? These political parties are not, they don't have the stuff to be dynastic anymore. They don't have the internal culture. They don't have the mass membership. They don't have roots and traditions and so on in the way that political parties, mass political parties used to. And so it's quite common now in Europe to see a um, 
a populist party, displace the old establishment, and then just explode, right? Because it has, it's not really, it's got no real roots in the population. Yeah. So this happens a lot. Like, this is what's happened to Macron. I mean, he hasn't exploded, but he's got no control of France. Um, in I Italy... Cyprus has resigned. Cyprus has resigned. Um, something he probably should have done years and years ago. Um, uh, Podemos... Their leadership has resigned, but they are a shadow of what they were even a few years ago. In Italy, of course, is the most extreme example. Um, the Liga Nord was supposed to be the next big thing, but then became the Liga, have now fallen on hard times. The five-star movement just sort of bubbled to the top of Italian society and then popped. This is what populist parties now do, and it looks like the SNP is going to be another example. Um, it's a part Yes, so... I remember writing these types of articles about, you know, the days of Scotland sending um, a, a kind of army of of Labour MPs down to Westminster are long gone, like the British Road to Socialism, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, that was my angle for that critique, right? That that was never going to happen again. I'm not... I mean, I think that that is unlikely to happen again, like mm. 50 plus Labour MPs. Like, I think that I think it's far more likely to be mixed in a Westminster general election. But obviously, we'll find out very soon. 2024, I believe. Um, but the thing particularly with the SNP and Holyrood is that I think that there's a very particular Scottish dynamic. Maybe this is just another angle of Scottish narcissism. Uh, where we love to see ourselves as unique and different and special and interesting. But <laughs> I think that part of the... And I, I remember saying this to someone at the time, um, like right, round about like 20... I think it was about 2018, 19. There um, was a local woman who was standing as an independent in the council elections. And I remember talking to her about it, like how basically everyone in her community had been a former Labour stronghold, had switched to SNP, it was now like SNP through and through, but the shine was coming off real fast. Mm. And I think there is something to be said, like, for the the decades-long decay of Scottish Labour. In, like, that took a long time to happen. If you think of Glasgow City Council, hundred years odds people have been electing Labour um, you know Labour MPs then Hollywood it's Labour MSPs you know and it took a it took a long time for the the kind of the sheen to come off and the mask to fall I guess to show that these are just um, these are different shades of political parties that ultimately apart from the constitution really represent pretty much the same interests and I think that there's a generation of people who watched Labour's downfall then saw the SNP come in and were like amazing those old bastards are gone we now have this thing and then very suddenly are going hang on why has this suddenly got this stench of Blairite about it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know what I mean like I think that there is a little bit of that there's certainly a familiarity with new labor so maybe it is that yeah maybe it's partly that people are um they've got recall you know they're getting yeah. nostalgia from from what they hated before but i also think it's just like you know like uh 
Jerry Assan wrote this book um, about Labour Scotland and that being distinguishable from Scottish Labour. Was it one of the ones that he wrote or was it one of the ones that he compiled of other people's essays? No, that was one of the ones. This is one of the famous ones that he he wrote. And um, it, its argument basically is that Scottish Labour could rest upon a kind of real institutional heft in Scottish society for a long time, right? The housing system kind of, you know what I mean, was very moulded by Labour, the trade unions, et cetera, et cetera. So there was once a real grounding for um, a civil society that was wider than the Labour Party, but upon which it could base itself. The SNP just doesn't have that. The what, And the only thing it did have was the independence movement, but it clamped down on it quite aggressively. I sometimes think, by the way, that was a major mistake. How necessary was it for Nicola Sturgeon to distance herself from the independence movement in the way she did? Their attitude was, suck it all into the SNP, we'll take the good bits, anything we don't like, we'll discard, we'll, we'll marginalise. Um, I think she probably now thinks to herself she wished she'd led some of those marches, right, and, and wedded herself more to the the, the extra SNP. Yeah, movement. but we are seeing this from a very particular perspective, like, and for a lot of, like, middle, middle-class Scotland, the First Minister leading an independence march is not what they want. Yeah, there's plenty of people in Scotland who voted for the SNP, who like Nicola Sturgeon, who would never have voted for independence in a march. So, never happened. Certainly, so that, that, that's important to recognise that her base and her appeal was not the independence movement a lot of the time. No, of course, um, it was. It, it was, was your former, like it was your former, like middle class Labour voters. Like I know them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Of course. So, um, so the so the SNP just never had that same institutional strength. Right. And I mean, the very few institutions that emerged out of the independence movement and that remain, like, for example, the national, it, you know, it, it's not like it's not the daily record. Right. It's not a paper that that once had a much wider kind of ambit than the than the Labour yeah, Party I mean, and so on. Like the lab, the daily record. Right. Was not a party political newspaper in the way that the national is of course of course yeah right the daily record wouldn't was like i don't mean this in like a like a mean way but if the daily record got a press release from the labor party they would have a journalist looking into and looking at the angles Instead of just publishing it on the front page, partly that's to do with the changes in print media. Do you know what I mean staff shortages, freelancing, like do you know what I mean the lack of respect for like real reporting, all of those things. But I'm just a little bit like the national, like I see it on the newsstands, and like every other paper is running with like First Minister arrested, questions asked about cash, um, and the National are running with like some mad like BBC bias shit. Yeah, yeah, but I suppose as well. That? Nobody. Nobody's that shows saying. that shows the relative thinness of their attachment to civil yeah. society. Right, you have a hyper partisan newspaper that's read by a few thousand activists compared to, I mean, the, what the, I suppose Scottish Labour come from a very different time in. The development of democratic society where your 
environment that you based yourself on mass politics included a lot of people and a lot of forces who don't particularly like you, right? I mean, the classic example with Labour is they somehow ended up with a situation over the generations where they got the support both of the traditional Catholic vote in the West Coast of Scotland and the Orange Lodge. That's a very, very different type of politics to um, drawing your support mostly from nationalists and having a newspaper that it just sort of parrots your ideas and your and your yeah, arguments no, and so on i agree with what you're saying totally but it wasn't i mean it's not it wasn't just the orange order right it was a working class protestant vote as well mm, yeah, yeah. ultimately like that is the institution of the major trade unions like you, like shipbuilding engineering it's a protestant working class yeah like the vast majority um, and that's not a criticism. I think that's just like a kind of like demographic fact. Um, so yeah, like obviously you have like the the Catholic traditional Irish Catholic vote for like public housing and the council and like public sector and um, those sorts of things. But you also have built in to the Labour vote the the kind of the trade union movement, um, and obviously that's the the strongholds of that in Scotland are it's in like kind of what would have been seen to be areas that don't employ Catholics mm -hmm. but the, the point is I mean that's that that's quite a sophisticated coalition to assemble right yes. and it includes people who would kind of broadly be always systematically suspicious of you the, the SNP just it doesn't have that right I mean it does it, it does have cross constituencies of course right it has people in the urban areas it has people in the countryside it has more middle class and more working class voters it's a much more simple mechanism to have like that I agree with you of course there's a significant portion of sturgeon support in wider civic society that was always supported her because of her brand of like pro-business liberalism right and the kind of pro-atlanticist politics but it, it there was this one ballast for the snp which was independent support and th that's now decoupling from the snp yeah, and so it's like it's just it's just interesting that that's quite a a kind of torturous and slow process scotland's not quite that far down the kind of italian road yet that the party the populist party of power just pops yeah. uh, and evaporates you know what i mean i mean i think that like the snp distancing itself from the independence movement as you rightly point out was a tactical disaster like let's take aside the politics for a moment and we know that like like i said like sturgeon's base is you know goes beyond the independence movement blah 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 so basically the majority of people who are on those independence marches are probably going to vote for the smp but she's triangulating into like a different bit um of the the kind of voter base but ultimately like what i think that they fail to grasp is what a lot of populist like left populist projects fail to grasp and that's the centrality of patriotism. Mm. Like, I think that you can't really have a successful po left populist project without patriotism. Like, I think Corbyn didn't want to do it either. Like, I, partly because he is he's so English. It's very hard to talk about Britain post-2014, right? Like, but I think that clearly Nicola Sturgeon felt squeamish about it. 
Mm. Um, do you know what I mean? There wasn't like a sort of pride of nationhood or like a patriotism. And I'm not talking like blood and soil nationalism here. I actually don't think that patriotism's much of a problem. Like I don't, I don't think it's inherently racist. I think successful populist projects have elements of patriotism to them and that's what kind of like binds your weird kind of like voters that aren't created through institutional power it kind of what smooshes them together smooshes them is not a very good word is it sorry i've still got the old baby brain but you know what i mean no of course i mean but i mean in the gel right that goes beyond the heat of the populist moment in which you have emerged of course, it's always been the, the case. Podemos couldn't do it, for example. And I remember speaking to people in Podemos, like, because there was always an awkwardness about Catalonia, about the Basque country. They were always a bit like, oh, we don't really want it. But you can't put this stuff in a box. Whereas the SNP actually had a gift in a lot of ways. Do you know what I mean? They could have, like, they could have used that, like, sense of patriotism. I remember my dad, like, my dad saying to me, like that he hated nationalism, despises nationalism, would never vote eh, for a nationalist party, like all this stuff. But my dad is patriotic. Of like, course, yeah. My dad's like, if you come through the middle, he's got Scotland written through him. <laughs> he loves Scottish literature and Scottish music. And, do you know what I mean? So I think that there, is, there would have been a way to appeal to like a sense of patriotic identity. Um, I mean... Yeah, this is this is just my take. But then, you know, you have to choose that or Atlanticism. You can't have both. I mean, the Scottish Labour, what hurt them so much in the last 10 years was for so long, Scottish Labour had been the guardians of Scottish national identity and Scottish patriotism. And they sacrificed that against the SNP because the SNP could promote themselves as the kind of true Scottish party and so on. So that undoubtedly is a big part of Scottish Labour's undoing. But see the point you were making earlier when you said um, you couldn't imagine those kind of flights of Scottish Scottish Labour MPs going down to Westminster in in the way they had after Red Clydeside. I still think that's true. I mean, I think what we're going to end up with in Scotland is basically a party graveyard where you have Labour, SNP, Greens, Lib Dems, Scottish Tories, ALBA, and sooner or later, or I mean, I suspect that it's possible anyway, that both the Greens and ALBA do relatively well at the SNP's decline. That's one possible scenario. Um, but ultimately, I think we're going to end up with a sort of political party graveyard where there are loads of... Um, cartel parties and you know they're standing up and they're walking around but there's no life inside of them um, you know Labour will put it like this like Scottish La- I think Scottish Labour will be back but I don't think Labour Scotland will ever return I no. think it's gone I think it's dead and so we're going to end up with an increasingly fragile party system which is increasingly volatile like so all you'll have is the voters, one party after another, one government after another, punishing each party in turn for uh, you know, causing the same grievances. So 
I wouldn't be surprised if the days of these kind of long-run political dynasties in Scotland, party dynasties, are basically over. And what you end up with is a frenetic competition between a host of mostly kind of centre-left parties who are all remarkably similar in their worldview and all the more vicious in their infighting because of it. Yeah, and the two, like, kind of, like, the idea of, like, the Greens and Alba doing well, like, these are parties which have essentially um, given themselves fuel through the culture war, which is not... Like that's that's not institution building. Like that's grievance. Exactly. That's like as axe grinding. Like, listen, I was in rice. I know you can't build power in that way, right? Yeah, it's impossible. Like, it, it's impossible. So, the, I think that 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 type of picture leads to main possibilities. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, but the fact still stands that Scotland needs like a left populist electoral option. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, it's very complex. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the the thing about populism is I feel like it's kind of, it's it's here to stay, right? I mean, my view of populism now is that it's not a strategy. It's not an approach to building a political project. It's what politics look like, looks like when you take away all the institutional stuff. Yeah. Right. So when you don't have strong trade unions, strong churches, strong cooperatives, etc., 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 and you don't have parties with a strong base in the population, then what you have is a personalization of politics. I mean, all of the yeah. things that people yeah. talk about when they yeah. when they're far, so like all of a sudden in the last 10 years, the party leader's face is everywhere, right? And everyone's like, it's big brother, it's the 30s. Returning, no, it's it couldn't be more different from the 30s because in the 30s you had these gigantic parties of millions of members with deep roots in society. This is the opposite. It's the personalisation of politics because the party machine is weak and shallow, right? And you have, because people are all pissed off, right, and because people feel this disconnect from the political system, there's a constant evocation of the rights of the ordinary people against the 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 establishment and the elites and so on but that's a perfect it's a reflection of profound weakness in the democratic system yeah. that the politics increasingly looks like that but like see see what you're saying like actually that whole personalization of politics and the collapse of the institutions this is actually what i was thinking about writing my next uh, herald column on which i've mm. got like a bi-weekly slot at the moment uh please do read it so that i can keep writing <laughs> <laughs> small punt there um, but what I think is one of the biggest indicators of this institutional collapse are these like I mean god god forgive me but these new podcasts no the new podcasts not not like this podcast not like this podcast mm. right where we have different views and different styles of like doing things and ways of communicating but ultimately like we agree on like do you know what I mean? We're held together by some ideological tradition, right? That's mm. a fact. And the fact that we've been friends for a long time. But I'm talking about, like, the the Alistair Campbell-Rory Stewart crossover. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Awful, awful. Have you ever heard people talking about this? Like, you I know, mean, you heard the trope of the Waterstones' dad. Right? Yeah, yeah. 
Right, so the Watsons' dad, where it's like, oh, you know, and Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, and they don't agree on anything. Don't agree on anything apart from how bad Trump is and how terrible Brexit is. Yeah. Right, and now you've got this other one, which is like George Osborne and Ed Balls, and I'm like, this and like this to me is like such a symptom of panic and like the kind of political class of institutional collapse because I swear. Every normal person is looking at that going, there is a fag paper between you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, everyone's like, of course you're doing a podcast, you're all pals. Balls and and, and Osborne are like the two horsemen of the austerity apocalypse, and they're doing a podcast about... And they're like, oh, we're like, you know, it's frenemies. I'm like, no, Mm. it's a buddy movie. It's just a buddy movie. Like, just admit it. It's Connor cast, but shit, they agree. I mean, they probably they probably agree on more than you and I do, right? But there's no there's no pretense on our part that we're coming at this from two different worlds are colliding, and uh, and it's like, oh my god, can they do that? Can they sit down in the same booth and talk about politics? But they hate each other. Uh, how could <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> they agree on nothing? Um, no, it's uh, it's totally pathetic. And yeah, they, but it is interesting, isn't it? They're using this brand of the kind of like oh yeah we are the reheated centrist dads and we're coming to restore a bit of order talk about things in a sensible measured uh way i listened to that alistair campbell um, why did you do that's like that's an act of self-harm it is an act of self-harm because i listened to the famous one where they talked about iraq right because rory stewart was like i mean this is nuts as well Rory Stewart was like a governor of some province in Iraq at the age of 30, right? These are the people they sent in to occupy that country, right? Alistair Campbell, famously, of course, is the the Goebbels of the Iraq war. And um, there's a bit where um, Rory Stewart recalls having arrived in an Iraqi province, a rest of Iraqi province in the south of the country and facing a, a Shia uprising in the south, he banned trade unions, just banned them outright, stroke of a pen, right? Um, and talks about how this was something demanded by the United States. The United States openly came in and said, trade unions, that's old hat, Right we are going to bring markets to Iraq because Iraq didn't have markets before, right? We're going to bring markets. And uh, yeah, so ban the trade unions, right? Sorry, I'm just laughing at like, do you know what these podcasts typify? Do you remember that thing that people used to say in IR, like international relations before 9-11, where they were like, two countries that have a McDonald's will never go to war with each other. Yeah, yeah. So people were like, get the McDonald's in here. Right, get the McDonald's, get rid of the unions. You need McDonald's, but the McDonald's workers can't have unions, right? Um, so here is a 30-year-old lad, right, who is posh beyond words, right? He's an aristocrat or has he some some blue blood, right? He has no knowledge of this country, he knows nothing, right? He has no legitimacy. He's not been voted for by anyone, of course. Turns up and does this. He tells in the podcast, he tells Alistair Campbell that. He says, remember when we banned all the trade unions in Iraq? And Alistair Campbell Campbell sort of goes, what? Right? Now, I don't know what's more rank, right? That he literally didn't know 
that he literally that he, he committed so many crimes in Iraq he can't remember them or he didn't even bother to record them at the time or that because the way he was like oh, I don't remember this the the way he discusses the banning of Iraq's trade unions in this kind of jovial like mm, I don't remember that I don't know which is I don't know which is worse that like, he does know or that he doesn't and he's that's how he talks about it that's so fucking, actually do you know what that's sick it's it, do you know it's it, it is like, such, it's such actual a, people's fucking lives. It's, it's like, su- I know that he expressed like a degree of regret or something, but hmm. that's that's not the same fucking thing. He accepted that it didn't work out. I, I mean, he didn't apologize. You'll never apologize, right? Oh. But um, I bet he did. It did buzz bring to, to mind that overused Hannah Arendt bit about um, the banality of evil, because you're listening to these two men discuss high crimes serious crimes that they've committed against the Iraqi people you're listening to a man and the, the thing is like it's almost worse to listen to Rory Stewart because Rory Stewart is um massaging his own uh um reputation among centrists as this really sincere really considerate really thoughtful man right and he's and so he's he's sort of putting Alistair Campbell on the spot and saying here's some things that went wrong here was my experience of what went wrong and you just think I'm sorry you're discussing the time when as a 30 year old you turned up in a you invaded a foreign people's country you took over a province of that country and you outlawed democracy right and you murdered their people and and you're discussing this as though and I have to tell you though I did a good job of work I think it was wrong. Uh, I, I think we were mistaken in what we did. Like, tell it to the Hague, right? That's who you should be giving this evidence to in your trial. If if we are serious, right? If we're as serious about the crime of the Iraq war as we are about the invasion of Ukraine, because it's become a commonplace, every politician needs to say, one day we'll have Putin in front of the Hague, right? If you're serious about this, you need to say this: these are crimes as severe and appalling as any that went on in that are going on in Ukraine today. Um, but it, but it's not that; it's just it's podcast fodder. It's being sold as a commodity. Um, these people are no different from Prigozhin or Putin or or whatever. So anyway, yeah, we're going to have the domestic version of that, presumably with Ed Balls and George Osborne, because Ed Balls at some point is going to be saying. I bet they're going to have, because that was like a two-parter when they did Remember it. Remember when we killed all those people during hysteria? Yeah, it's like, so what? Here's, here's Ed Balls, Mr. Serious Man's take. I think we went a bit too far with the disabled people. I'm just going to say that, and I know that's controversial, and I know that we, you and I are frenemies, and this is going to cause a little bit of friction between us, but I think all those thousands of people who died maybe went a bit far. Right. So we're going to have that we have got the foreign policy version and now we're going to have the domestic policy version. And I look forward to that. I mean, I'm not like I'm not like hamming up the bit about people dying during a steady. Like that's not like this isn't like fucking far left trot bot stuff. This is like actually like scientifically investigated, peer reviewed data that shows about 300,000 people died because of the effects of austerity in Britain. And and the like, thing is... actually happened, and now you've got these two arseholes 
doing frenemy podcasts. I mean, I was talking about it a bit flippantly, but see now that you've mentioned that erratic thing, like my, like I'm angry, and it, like I don't get this kind of rage about politics very often anymore. Like I just feel like sometimes I can't afford it. It's, but it's it, it, I, it, yeah, I know what you mean. That's I, sick. I think like, sometimes you come across something like that, and that's the thing. Like, after I listened to that, I was sort of like, I, I can't uh, deal with this anymore. And it's, I don't know, it's the obliviousness or the complacency or the fact that we're all going along with it. And, it's, and, yeah. It's the arrogance of it. Hmm. It's the arrogance of it. It's like people are still living with the consequences of your actions people are still living with grief and trauma that you have inflicted. Now, see, for normal fucking non-sociopathic human beings, there would be a degree of guilt. There would be, a, do you know I mean, you would want to make amends, you would want to ask for forgiveness, and you would want to be able to receive forgiveness. You would want redemption, right? They don't. They don't. They don't want any of that. They don't want to make amends. They want to use this in order to rehabilitate their career in an era of party political graveyards where institutions are collapsing and the centre is propped up with, like, plywood. And I think they want to be commended as well, that they can search their own past and Alistair Campbell can say, do you know what, I agree, we did make serious mistakes. I mean, it's just like you want to be commended for that. And they think that's what separates them from, quote, unquote, the populists. So this is is something I think about in politics a lot at the moment, is about this idea of, like, reconciliation, um, working with people that you don't agree with, and so on. That's not what I mean. Like, I don't mean Ed Balls and George Osborne doing a podcast together. That's not what I mean, right? Because they have a, they do have a shared interest. They have a shared class interest. They have a shared career interest. They have a shared professional interest. Like, what I'm genuinely interested in is like, you know, people who, and I, this is a, like the, the first piece that I wrote for the Herald was about like, could I work with politically? I mean, work with politically in the sense of, could I build some kind of party or organization or would I get involved in something that was big enough and broad enough to include people who hold views I find wholly objectionable, but that I agree with on economic issues? So I was like, could I <laughs> be in a party with blokes from the Orange Order if they agreed with an economic programme of like tax the rich, you know, popular sovereignty for economic decision making and control and um, these sorts of things? Could I? I like, to be honest, the, ans- the, the real answer is I don't know. <laughs> Mm. that's the only honest answer you can give in those circumstances but that do you you understand what i'm saying like that's a that's a different thing than like two politicians who ultimately have very similar 
professional experiences um, who disagree on shades on the paint chart of death. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, like that's what we're talking. And I'm talking about like people who like at the economic base, like at the economic core, are the people with a degree of potential power and agency to actually transform society. Yeah, no, I, I totally get. It. I mean, even even the fact that we can ask ourselves that question indicates the extent of the decline of mass politics because yeah. a, a mass political project presupposes relationships between people with very strong disagreements, right? Of the type you're describing. So as we were just saying, the, the trade union movement, of course, was made up of Catholic workers and Protestant workers. Uh, you know, then the Protestant workers sometimes when they were in organizations like the Orange Lodge, and there were plenty of people like that in trade unions, had bigoted views towards other trade union members. Um, but if you can't incorporate all those views into the same trade union, trade unionism doesn't work, right? Yeah. And that's and that's that's trade unionism is an obvious case, but it's obviously it's just as true for political parties, for protest movements. Yeah, I think the, the, the big difference is like with trade unions is that it's far simpler. Mm. It's far simpler because it's a defensive organisation. It's ultimately mm -hmm. a defensive mechanism, which I think is, I think it's easier to get people to like, to unify around a thing. Whereas if you're talking about any type of organisation that is pushing for advancement, then you know, and I know, we've been in the rooms and the meetings where it's like, oh, what's on our list of demands? Like, oh, no, this is a priority, this is a priority, this is a priority, this is a priority, and you end up with, like, this insane shopping list and nobody's happy. Um, do you know what I mean? And, like, you have to take a position on everything. It's like, oh, this thing's in the news. What's our position on it? Mm. It's like, no, because everything that's in the news is the culture war, right? So if you start, <laughs> you start taking positions on everything, then you're just getting sucked in. And I'm not saying like that we can just ignore it, but I think that there has to be a way to like step beyond like the relentless position taking all the time. Of course. Um, of course. And some like I've learned this phrase that I'm very much enjoying at the moment, which is I don't have an opinion on that. See if there's something I don't have an opinion on. Mm. I don't have an opinion on it. <laughs> No, no. I the more brutal one, by the way, and this is the one you'll know that we have a mature left that can be honest about its politics when you can say this to someone, and it doesn't result in um, far flying. And it's the most offensive thing you can say to anyone on the left who carries with them the germ of identity politics, and it's to say, "I don't think that's a priority." That drives people nuts. Like because... that's yeah, that that's that's that that does rile people up. But but then if... people like start like getting into the oh no, it's like this intersection like means if we fight that, then we're really fighting this as well. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like identity politics has been a disaster. <laughs> yeah. For provably, observably. For like economic progress in the interests of the majority it's been a disaster it's not even it's not even just economic it's also it's political i mean i'll put it like a this political right? power yeah 
put it like I mean, the, I mean, we're talking about. I mean, you know, you could say like the miners' strike sounds like a different universe to people now, right? So the the fact that there were Catholic and Protestant workers and immigrant workers all joined together in the, um, you know, and and workers with relatively bigoted views and workers with relatively kind of liberal views all involved in that mass strike action. People hear that and they think, yeah, but that was on a different planet, wasn't it? Well, this wasn't on a different planet. Speaking of the Iraq War, the movement against the war in Iraq certainly involved people at extreme ends of the spectrum yeah, on yeah. questions Hugely. of um, social conservatism and social yeah. liberalism. The movement would not have worked yeah. had at any point it been declared that only social liberals or only social conservatives be involved in the march. And of course, there were people even then who said, you can't go on a march with the with organisations which are kind of derived from the Muslim Brotherhood tradition, and we were lucky that there was a strong enough tradition of socialist of socialist politics. I'm talking about here. Hundred percent. So conservatism and liberalism are not the key issue for socialists. Hundred percent. Like I, I would like to share an anecdote, which if you think is inappropriate, then you may edit. Okay. But this happened to me directly in stop the, like in the anti-war movement, where I wasn't in any left-wing organization, and um, but I was very close to organized socialists with who were in like they were in a party that gave them backbone and tradition and a sense of identity. And like you get kind of like you get steel with that. Do you know what I mean? Like, they making hard arguments and all that. But I wasn't aware of this, like, at the time. Like, I was just, do you know what I mean? Like, quite green on a lot of issues. Like, I don't mean politically. I just mean, like, I was even more naive then than I am now. Um, So I remember going to, like, I think it was, like, a demo or something. And then afterwards, me and this group of other people were speaking to a a man from a Muslim association and at the end of the conversation like he thanked everyone personally and he shook everyone's hands and it got to me and he was like oh I'm sorry like I won't I won't shake your hand mm. and like I do you know I mean because I was I was a woman and I hadn't actually I hadn't really noticed that I was the only woman until that point and I remember being like well this isn't very progressive is it Mm. And the people I was with took time to explain to me, like, not why I was wrong to have that gut reaction, but, but why this movement is so much bigger than my fucking feelings, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? For me to be like, well, that's not very progressive, is it? And it's like, that... That that's not what this is about. Like, and those people were really patient with me now that I look back on it. Um, because I think that that's that's lost. So you know, like that kind of like socialist tradition, and there aren't as many socialist organizations as there were, and like people aren't as steely, and they're also not as patient, and they're not as well versed, and they're not as like, I don't know, prepared to have the argument or prepared to present a defence because they're, like, frightened of getting cancelled or some shit, right? Um, you know, that's 
I, I always think of that whenever we talk about like the anti-war movement and the mix of like social conservatism and like radical leftists and feminists and all of these things. It had to be like that. It had to be. It had to be a mass movement. Um otherwise it wouldn't it wouldn't have shaped so much that came afterwards. Of course, and if you think about it. Practically everything in British politics is on the left anyway is downstream from the anti-war movement since then. Corbynism, as I'm sure I've said in this podcast before, is the anti-war movement when it reaches the Labour Party. The student movement was kind of different. There was other stuff coming through, but it's certainly in the wake of the anti-war movement. Radical independence. Radical independence, definitely. Radical independence. Like I remember like I'm talking like when it was actually set up as an organization. And we would, there was like 10 of us in that room <laughs> in the office on Union Street. And like everyone was from the anti-war movement or from Palestine Solidarity. Like mm. that's where people, that's like where people had been radicalized. Mm. And I think that really mattered for the politics. Like the politics of like Britain is a bad global actor and independence is an opportunity to punish the British state. Like, do you know what I mean? Like that was... The kind of like I remember that being a key part of the impulse and um, of being pro-independence. Um and yeah, yeah, it was important. Of course. And of course, I mean again, another movement where if you're really if you would set out from the very start to say this independence movement can only belong to people with a certain um you know uh a certain knowledge and a certain pre-existing agreement about what the cultural, moral and aesthetic parameters of that movement are, then you couldn't possibly have built a successful movement. It would have been utterly, utterly impossible um, to do that. Um, but then, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't really think that, that culture, the culture war, like populism, it's, it's the culture war is a product of our period and it, and it is certainly not a for, force that can take power or challenge power and it's and it's not supposed to be these things are all products of the peculiar the peculiar period we've reached in history where democratic traditions have um emaciated down to almost nothing and the byproduct of that is a personalized politics and a politics of kind of moral demarcation between yeah. members of kind of subaltern groups in society and it's uh, it's a death trap like it is yeah. a death trap. You will die if you go into it politically. And one of the things that I have to find interesting is the left has been more damaged by this because traditionally working class people and lower middle class people and so on have so been so dependent on organization, right? So um because the this you know the state, the ruling class, they come with organization ready-made, corporations, the state, these things run themselves through raising revenue and so on. Um so the loss of organized traditions has been extremely harmful for the left. It is, I, I don't know that it's making me feel better that the madness has spread into the right as well. Like the right is now going absolutely crazy and losing their minds. <clears throat> I kind of feel like in a way, I wrote this article about that national conservative conservatism yeah. conference. And I sort of said that they, you know, like that Nietzschean aphorism of don't stare into the, into the abyss. abyss so the abyss will stare back into you that's happened they've stared into the madness 
of the left's culture war and it's infected them and they've gone they've gone crazy they've un- unleashed the kind of monsters from the abyss into their own minds um the latest being matt goodwin matthew goodwin was who's, once who's matthew goodwin again he was an academic who works on populism and he was once a kind of critic to an extent of the of the populist right but he always kind of said um these people are speaking for and to a real constituency. So for a time, he was almost kind of like a siren voice describing the rise of, of, of populism. In the last year or so, and really mo- mostly in the last few months, he's really gone over to kind of right-wing culture war in a kind of turbo uh, fashion. I mean, he sounds different today to the way he did six or seven or eight weeks ago. It's that kind of, and that, and you see, you used to see people on the left do this tumbling down the rabbit hole of the culture war and visibly before your eyes going mad, right? Matt Goodwin, he used to be someone who, like, he was taken seriously as an academic. He, at least he represented a sort of, that kind of traditional academic's objectivity and distance from what he was discussing. I'm sure there are people who would criticise what he was discussing at the time as well. And then a couple of days ago, he released a video that's just him ranting into the camera and he's sort of you know a kind of monologue and he's saying a revolution has come to Britain and this revolution is everywhere it's in the schools they're twisting what your children learn and he's sort of stan and he's gone kind of brittle and mad right and this is by the way this isn't some you know sometimes guys reach the age of kind of you know they reach a certain age and they go off the boil and they start saying wild things he's not of a certain age he's kind of in his early 40s or something right and he's given it all this um they're coming for your children um it's you know what i mean it's, it's become quite swivel-eyed right i mean it's still probably in what he's saying like elements of truth like he's trying to weld it to this thing of like uh, workers have had their rights taken off them. There's massive wealth inequality in society. I mean, that's obviously true, um, but it's all it's all mashed in there with the culture war. And honestly, it's like it's like a kind of AI reproduction of what a right wing culture war is. It's like Chat GPT has written this rant. It's like an algorithm has created uh, this person. So that's, I mean, but the, the, the right have, in the end, a similar problem to the left, which is they've lost all their traditions. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, that's... What do they like, have left? Like, Thatcherism is obviously a joke. No one today can seriously mount a defensive, no. uh, like, free markets, and no, no one's really trying, right? But this is, like, this is the third shout-out for my hero column. Yeah. <laughs> like... This is what I was, this is what I've been banging on about, about like the family, right? As like a central institution of the right, like, you know, obsessed with like family values and the nuclear family and like the family as like this really important place of socialization and education for children. Now, I, I think the family is important, like, for that, right? But I, I cannot get a conservative to argue the like their like a Thatcherite point of view economically in defense of the family because it doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. Like wage decline and wage suppression and the type of jobs that people have and um, the like the way that like the debt economy was concealed by like the house price boom. Like all of these like fall all, all of the fallouts from Thatcherism, like this basically is from like the seventies onwards, has destroyed their idea of the nuclear family. Completely yeah. obliterated it. Do you know what I mean? The idea that like there would be like daddy's daddy's going off to work and his job and mum's staying at home and there's two uh, kids and do you know what I mean the house is like gleaming and do you know what I mean there's never like any financial stress or financial worries we're talking about like that must be like 0.5 percent of families in Britain it's just not realistic and yeah, not, they- like and I'm not saying by the way bring back the nuclear family like I'm actually not like I don't when I think of families I think of something that's like a lot more fluid than that um but even then like I keep asking these like people who defend Thatcher to be like well what did you do to the family you say that you like believe in family values and bringing you know the family closer together and it's at the heart of your politics but you have torn it apart yeah and, and i mean it's i mean i it's a complex one only in that um i mean the the birth rate in china is now fallen right and that's because um you know once you once you elevate a certain proportion of your population to a certain level of education income social expectations expectations that people hold for their own lives inevitably the birth rate falls right but the in britain a particularly savage labor market has been created where everyone is told that your 20s and 30s are when you establish your career right and people are surprised at how fast the birth rate's falling and and by the way in your 20s and 30s know that you need to get up you know it's rise and grind Know that you need to get up in the morning and slave every hour that God sends. And if you're not doing that and you're not on the treadmill, right, you won't get married, except, you know, you won't find Mr. or Mrs. Wright or whatever. Um, and people are surprised that that reduces the possibility of child rearing, right? And I also think that, I don't know, I think sometimes these Jimbros who are like rise and grind think that it takes nine months to create a child. I don't think they realise that it also takes like a decade <laughs> to raise that child, right? In certain conditions of stability. Exactly. In certain conditions of stability, like housing stability, career stability, and like benefits. And like support networks. Social support networks, which are seriously like, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like a vicious cycle of, you know, churches would once have been places where you took children for sunday school and for extracurricular activities thousands of churches are about to close across the uk community centers are closing a whole edifice of social life is crumbling and no one on the right can answer this or even tries and no one challenges them either like i think that there are some people who are who are who are making the case that it's not simply economic factors mm-hmm. but that the cultural influence of like a kind of post 1960s left 
have had quite a significant impact on the birth rate in terms of uh, why women don't want to have children as much as they might have in previous generations. And mm-hmm. that there have, I mean, I read an article where they were arguing that um, basically the there's been a decoupling, a cultural decoupling of sex and reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, again, though, I mean, okay, I mean, obviously... I'm not like, I'm not saying that, like, that I agree with this. Like, I think it's a little bit, it feels a little bit like kind of it's grasping at something and not quite getting there. I mean, I, I, I'm not averse to the idea that in its desperation, right, to challenge social conventions and so on, you obviously had figures uh, on the radical left in the kind of 68 generation, the kind of William Rice and all this kind of stuff who became kind of distracted by this obsession with kind of sexual freedom in a certain way. But it it could only be the market that would mass produce that and mass commodify it. The left doesn't have the institutional strength to change the world's ideas about what sex is for, right? It can it it can play a role in kind of being the laboratory for some wacky shit, right? And obviously in '68 there was some wacky shit going on, right? There was the the, the you know the the those kind of surrealist movements and weird communes and shit. But it takes Coca Cola, you know, to what's the what was that advert they had? They had I'd like to teach the world to sing, right? Like it take to, to to make hippieism a mass product. It takes the power, the productive power of capital. Um. So, uh, but I agree with that. Like it's that thing of part of this is uh, also that there's a, a social expectation on women to be kind of desirable and so on, and that doesn't mean having kids. Right. But that's something that was rammed down our throats in the end by the same market forces that the Thatcherites were so desperate to to unleash. Um, but I mean, in what sense even is there a conservative movement anymore? There are a few conservative intellectuals kicking about, but is there a movement? No, and like not obvious to me. Like, see when it comes to the culture war, some of the like right wing so-called intellectuals so dumb so dumb man right so you in an act of self-harm listen to that podcast i in an act of self-harm watched the matt walsh documentary oh is this uh as a woman right (laughs) imagine it's like it's like louis through but right wing with a lobotomy mm-hmm. that's the that's that's the kind of like level right so he's doing he's doing Louis through like you know that we were like not so much I like I haven't seen any of the new Louis through stuff for a long time but like back when he did like weird weekends where he would like be sort of quite cute in the sense that he would a be goofy like goofy oh, guy what do you mean by like you're having a swingers party what goes on there then do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you just you kind of like soft um and like the way that people would then confide in him and open up to him, obviously, like that 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 worked at the time. It was a it was a relatively new shtick to be mm-hmm. doing. So it's a little bit like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just this guy being like, What is a woman? Right? And it's 
uh, it's so stupid right because like obviously I'm watching this like just as a sort of like this is a circus (laughs) but Matt Walsh's basic way of understanding reality right is what I can see with my eyes is real Therefore, that is truth. Hmm. How does that fit in with his Christianity? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what? Like, I mean, that that's like that's philosophy one one, right? I, I know like nothing about like philosophy. <laughs> Even I know that like that is a flawed logic. Like, there are things that you cannot see that are still real. Like, gender is still real. It's real. It's a real thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't just because you can't like see it in a sense. Because like, you can't quantify it. it in the same uh-huh, sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's just it's really dumb and like just quite boring in like the trolling of it. Mm. Um, like, uh, it's just it was quite depressing. And I think that there are some people on there. Like there was a guy who was talking about um like he was doing a sort of like follow the money on a lot of this and he was talking about like how um like major health insurance companies and you know medical companies are making huge profits like out of it which Mm. I was like oh I've never actually thought of that before that's kind of like really sick and like just makes me think America's like even more like fucked up place um, than previously thought um, but like I was like god I feel kind of bad that someone's entered into this like in good faith do you know what I mean and like to be met with this like absolute Egypt like it's just it's it, I don't even I didn't even finish it mm-hmm. no I'm a, I'm a fan of like stupid documentaries like I mean we watched Alex's War oh <laughs> yeah yeah, no, it takes you back to a different time, you know, when, okay, Alex Jones was dumb, but he was dumb in a very entertaining way, you know, and it's just, you don't get that. I mean, it's everyone's like, all of these cultural warriors now, they're, they're so dour. Do you know what I mean? They're so severe. And they're talking about, I mean, if you're going to thrash around in areas of, like, triviality, right then at least i don't know take a sense of humor to it but no it's like everything on the cultural war right it's like i've noticed more and more probably because of the way twitter has changed right and i've now got the, my elon feed right this thing of like how the left for decades said every american president was a fascist except for obama right but you know everything was fascist you're a fascist he's a fascist, she's a fascist, could I be an unconscious fascist? You know, do I need to search my own inner fascist to make sure I'm not a fascist. The cultural war right is everything's communism. Everything's a communist. Everyone's a communist, right? I saw some, I don't know, his, I don't really know who he is because I don't follow football, but some football commentator called Matt something, right? Famous football commentator in England. 
he came out with this today and he's like that the communists are trying to take over very kind of old kind of yeah, john birch society type thing which is just scary. everywhere now and you know it's all about 15 minute cities and all this kind of stuff right yeah. the communists the communists are everywhere there's a communist conspiracy everywhere but the weird thing about the cultural war is it's like it's like in a body of water where you can see a warm current meeting a cold current, right? On the one hand, there's a great severity about the terror that is this communist conspiracy that's taking over. But do any of them actually believe this? I think no, right? And it's just the same as like, there was such an intensity when Trump was elected and there were people screaming and shouting, he's a fascist, this is fascism, it's Hitler all over again. How many people actually acted like it was Hitler again? Basically no one. But I don't think that just means they're just talking shit. I think it means that the culture war involves some kind of like uh, split personality thing, right? Where on the one hand, there's a very real hatred, terror, a feeling of extreme factionalism and extreme tribalism met with a completely blasé attitude of total, of basic disinterest in politics. And somehow these two forces meet together inside the same mind, and that creates the perfect culture warrior. Because I don't know anyone who's invested in the culture war who also kind of just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and, and, and that's what leads them to consume it as a product, to, let's be honest, a lot of culture war issues have the mileage they do because people enjoy it. Oh, they enjoy like, engaging. Culture is big money, man. Like, money. Culture is big books, like big bucks for books, right? So, like, there's a whole like section in Waterstones, like that is basically a culture war. Yeah. Do like, I mean? like, come here like, for your culture war goods. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I also think it's partly to do with like shifting identities. And people becoming unmoored from traditions and heritage and looking for a place to be and someone to be. And it's very easy if you engage in a world where like everything is coded like like in a in black and white like that. So you do you know what I mean like the down to the type of music you like, right? Down to what films you watch, like everything is coded politically now, like, left or right. Um, and I think that, like, in an age of kind of, I don't know, especially post-pandemic of people feeling, like, unanchored or adrift, then you can just go into a bookshop and you can just buy, like, a whole shelf and be like, I'm this person now. Like if it if it has an expression in politics, right? To take it back briefly to this, the personalization thing. I've been thinking about since she announced that she wasn't going to stand again for the elections, Mary Black, right? Because I I, I mean sometimes because you can get you can get a bit sucked in and like the first, my first response was like, oh you know here's here there goes the great white hope we heard so much about how great she was going to be but then you need to stop and you need to say is that something that mary black did to herself right i remember her being built up with a certain mythology around her and she was carried along in the current of it she's from paisley she's working class she worked in a chip shop and she's a firebrand she's the 21st century answer to socialism 
yes, it's socialism like your parents and grandparents had, but now it's young and now it's right on, right? And this is that, that this is that tradition reincarnated into a 21st century persona, right? And this person's going to go down to Westminster and take on all the old fusty conventions, right? And shake it up and show them how we do things in Scotland, dynamic, progressive, modern Scotland, etc. blah, 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 blah. And yeah, she, she went along with that. She reiterated all these ideas about how she was like, you know, she was emerging from the chip shops of Paisley to fight against the Etonians, right? <laughs> In a kind of, you know, the essence of, of modern class warfare and blah, blah, blah. She then didn't really do anything, right? She made strong public speaker. She made speeches in the parliament that received, I mean, 10 million people viewed some of her speeches in the parliament. Um, working class people in those speeches always appeared as victims. Then You know, it was always like, and, you know, it was real stuff. Here's the number of people you've sanctioned. Here's what you did with the rape clause, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't coming from like a workers movement. And it was an, you know what I mean? And it was an attack into the parliamentary sphere from an extra parliamentary movement. And she didn't really kind of fight for any backbench motions. I'm not particularly complaining about that because I think if I was elected an MP, I wouldn't spend a lot of time in parliament at all because what's the fucking point? Right? It is, I mean, it is, it is shit, right? I'd like to think I would spend my time involved in extra parliamentary initiatives, but she wasn't really involved in any of those either, right? And then, but then you have to ask yourself, from whence does this this persona come, right? If how can she get ten million views on these speeches if she's not really part of any kind of organic movement? If it's essentially a sort of character, if it's essentially a sort of persona, and the answer is she's channeling these sorts of cultural war energies. It's this parasocial thing of people really wanted to believe in the avatar. They wanted to believe that there's a revolution coming, pioneered by a 20-year-old working-class woman from Paisley, and that she represents a kind of fundamentally different way of doing things, and that they can align themselves tribally with this persona, right? And you know, and then you've got the kind of the antithesis in the form of someone like Boris Johnson, and they want to see the fantasy battle play out. There's nothing substantial going on here. There's no, like, there's not going to be some like socialist SNP victory like at the end of this. No, it's the political equivalent of like Elon Musk fighting Mark Zuckerberg. That's exactly what it is. They and we keep doing this. We keep um kind of building up these fantasy gladiators and sending them into the Colosseum against each other and watching. Right. That's the thing. Like we've learned to consume politics in that way that no one ever. No one ever said, right? I remember shortly after she was elected in 2015, a friend of mine who's a kind of stalwart activist in Newcastle in, and I think he was organising a Palestine solidarity protest. And he said, have you got a contact for Mary Black? And I sent him everything I had, but I said, I doubt she's going to come out onto that protest. Because even then, only a few months after she'd entered Parliament, there was a very, very brief moment where some of the MPs went out on protest. In fact, I think they went out in a Palestine protest in London, and they must have been told by party managers, let's tone it down, right? But she never she never became that figure. Like I think people thought she was going to be like Jeremy Corbyn was as a backbencher. 
as a as a campaigning political personality like corbyn uh was always campaigning every single fucking day right i mean he was he's uh, like been a machine for decades i really think people thought she'd be that way but politics has changed such that that's not how you build a base anymore you build it through media engagement through the construction of a persona through a biddable commodity that people want and can access in a relatively leisurely fashion. You don't need to go out and get arrested with Jeremy Corbyn protesting apartheid. You can watch Manny Black on Twitter making a speech about poverty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that's the more serious way to think about that phenomenon. Like yeah. I don't I don't want to get slagged into bashing people. I think we need to come to terms no. with why things are this it's way. Not, and it's not a personal criticism of Mary Black either, but we've we all play a part in it because we all engage in the parasocial fantasy. Hmm. Like I mean, like the Corbin stuff, uh Bernie, um I'm with Nicola. Like AOC, I suppose was AOC, like yeah. yeah, like um, you know, it's not just. I mean, if there was no audience for AOC doing her makeup on TikTok and talking about a skincare regime and whilst talking about politics, then it wouldn't happen. That this is the problem. Is like it is. It's a relational thing. Um, that the people in the other ends are creating the demand um, for it as well. And, you know, I think we've all done that to some extent. Um, like this really new phenomenon of calling party political leaders by their first names as well, like Boris and Nicola and like that sort of thing. Um, the, the major issue, like, and it kind of brings us back to where we started, is that if you have parasocial relationships as the foundation for your political um, partisanship, you will always be disappointed. You will always be disappointed. Like Blair and Sturgeon, like whoever it is, like, because these people are human and like they will, they will fuck it up. Like guaranteed. Everybody, like everyone. Like, so I think I think it's a real thing that when you like lean too closely into the so like I mean I I mean talking to people who are like oh you know I thought I, I think Tony Blair's probably really sorry about Iraq like what are you talking about mm. or like I think Nicola did a really good job during COVID I'm like care home deaths care home deaths like nobody held responsible for that like. So all the, I mean, all the evidence is there, but they've created a public persona that allows people to invest in them and gives them a degree of political protection from like actual arguments. Um, it's really, it's really grim. I ultimately, this is the thing. I ultimately think there's something very melancholic about the culture of parasociality uh, because it reminds me a lot of nostalgia. Do you know there's that thing with nostalgia where it gives you, like, if it hits 
right okay like if you actually manage to connect with something nostalgic from your childhood right or from a different period in your life it gives you a little frisson right it gives you a little a uh, little taste of you know that that kind of feeling of happiness but it's underlain by this real um kind of melancholic feeling because you know it's just not quite real right that's that's how i think this works with so like someone like aoc right so i quite recently i saw um the democratic socialists of america who nominated aoc as their candidate in the in the democratic party they put out a a graphic that says there are more members of a socialist party now in the united states than at any time since before the first world war or since the 1920s, I think, which would have been Eugene Debs' Socialist Party, right? And on paper, at least, I think that's true. The Democratic Socialists of America now have the same number or more members than Eugene Debs' you know, big Socialist Party or the CPUSA had and so on. And you think... but And, and you could imagine through those eyes looking at someone at AOC and saying, well, she's like a modern-day equivalent of Eugene Debs, right? But it's like, yeah, but, but she's not, right? <laughs> and there's something ultimately really sad about this. I don't, I don't mean just the desperation to make it real. There's a yearning for mass politics that isn't being requited for a meaningful struggle to change society that isn't just quite, it's just quite not being met, Right? It's still at the level of a demonstration. It's still at the level of a rehearsal at best. It's still a performance. And there's something I find just dreadful about that. I, do you know what I mean? It's something I find... It's like people always said to me about, you know, when you were a kid and first getting into politics and you'd listen to a band like Rage Against the Machine. In theory, it, everything about Rage Against the Machine works. Sometimes the lyrics aren't very good, right? But it's got political content, you know, it was very vibey of its kind of era. It had that kind of rap meets metal type thing. The four guys were really cool, right? <laughs> and like they fit the bill, they fit the image of what the band was supposed to be doing. And they emerged at the time of like the anti-capitalist movement. So it seemed like it was connecting with a real political reality. It has exactly the same feel. The performance makes sense. The reality is that it's not relating to a real political movement. There's nothing, there's, do you know what I mean? It's, it's a yeah. simulacrum. Yeah. And the, and the painful kind of recognition of that. I mean, it's, that's very much the feel I get from the Mary Black performance. Yeah. It's, um, there's a really good episode of South Park um, like in one of the later seasons, like twenty or twenty-one, um, called Member Berries, which I've seen this kind <laughs> of skit, yeah, which touches on these like issues of nostalgia within politics, um, and it's it's good for a laugh if you need to be cheer up after a particularly depressing <laughs> pod from us. Yeah, yeah, Member Twenty Fourteen. Member, don't, don't, like it's yeah, lifetimes ago. Mm. Like if you think about like a sixteen-year-old who was able to vote <laughs> in the twenty fourteen referendum, 
like how old they are now. It's just like, come on. <laughs> yeah, and I'd 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 love to be able to see these events through those eyes, though, <clears throat> and to what extent they have an expectation beyond any of this. Mm. Like I could well imagine. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I could imagine that if you've been reared on the culture war, do you have a perspective beyond it? I mean, do you think that kind of like um, authoritarian liberals and sort of right-wing populists is all there is, that that is the real game, rather than this kind of warped reflection? Um, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I mean, you could say that people our age have also come up with a very truncated view of what politics is because of yeah. a consequence of all these social processes. So, yeah, I don't know. But um, it will be interesting. Is- One thing I will say, right, just to kind of uh, cheer people up a bit, is I think there's only so long this can continue before things actually have to return to reality, especially when the average household in this country has lost about 6% of its buying power in the last year, right? Um, there's only so long that politics can reflect it, you know what I mean? It's own prerogatives and its own interests in this way through this kind of shadow boxing. Um, and also I think it's interesting like for many years, people said Scotland was exception was an exceptional case in Europe. I think we're definitely not an exceptional case in Europe. I don't actually think we've been an exceptional case in Europe. I think, especially since about 2012, we really reflected the mainstream of European politics through big populist movements, the decline of social democracy, the rise of populist political forces, the rise of techno-populism in the form of someone like Nicola Sturgeon. We're now reflecting the collapse of populism. And I think it's interesting to be part of that historical moment, at the very least. It will be interesting to see what actually emerges from the decomposition of the SNP and if one of those... I mean, it's a hard sell, David, but yeah, I'll take it. It's a hard sell, but there's always a possibility that at some turn in this road, there's some kind of repoliticization that, that's that's more real than yeah. what we've had. So, um, well, I mean, I agree. Like, I, I'm trying not to, like, be on the eternal snark wagon of politics. Mm. Like, I'm challenging myself to, like... I don't know. The hard thing of that is you look less clever when things stay shit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You don't want to make yourself a hostage to uh, hopeful uh, propositions of prediction. Well, I have been reading and rereading <laughs> Nick Cave's uh, book with Sean O'Hagan that's kind of recently come out in paperback called uh, Faith, Hope and Carnage. Mm. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's a masterpiece. Can't recommend it strongly enough. But like, I read this line in it, which just like actually stopped me in my tracks. And it was like, uh, he said, "Hope is optimism with a broken heart." Mm. And I was just like, "Oh shit!" Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Like, I get that. I get that. There's this kind of like sense of like, um you know, like, the tragedies and the grief <laughs> that exists out there, but you always, I don't know, 
keep going anyway. Hmm. On that on that note, we should probably say we're gonna make these podcasts more regular. <laughs> That's hopeful. Yeah, let's say that again. Optimism with a broken heart there. But also, uh, well, I think the idea is we're going to do some special editions as well for Conta subscribers. We want to do, I want to do a Conta subscriber one so that I can actually dial up the snark. <laughs> yeah, say the things there that you can't say in public. And uh, yeah, uh, Conta is currently fundraising. Um, and you can support us at Patreon forward slash Scott to get oodles of uh, subscriber-only content and help the project continue and grow. Um, but yeah, that's 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 a binding commitment from two people who have never lied to you before uh, and will definitely come through. And who don't agree on anything. We don't agree on anything. Nothing at all. Could you can you from... can you believe that two people who obviously don't agree on anything could make a podcast like this? It's crazy. It is crazy. Uh, all four subscribers. I'll be talking about the time that I uh, invaded Iraq and controlled a major province of that country at the age of thirty, uh, where I banned trade unions, shot a bunch of people up against the wall. Um, but now have some concerns that actually things weren't done terribly well. <laughs> and Kat will be discussing the time that she introduced universal credit with catastrophic consequences for millions of working class people. I was, I was thinking more about like ATOS. I think like I, that would be the, the, the confession. Is like, I made disabled people go and be assessed by non-medical professionals. Yes. And then just cut their benefits. Like people were that people had terminal cancer. And I was just like, nah, not sick enough. Not sick but enough. But no, but but you're strong enough. You're big enough now and centrist enough to and you're big enough and centrist enough to say, nah, you know, maybe I could have done it a little bit better. Actually, what we're gonna do for our paid subscribers is David and I are gonna reveal the stupidest po- political positions we've ever taken. <sighs> That will be a long list. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we'll do, maybe do, we'll do like a top three. That'd be that'd be a great first episode. Um. So yeah, if you subscribe, then it's on the it's on the to do list. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll see you soon. See you soon. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascot.com.